I should make an admission straight up that uh, it's, I think, coming on for 20 years since I wrote in Xanadu. I haven't reread it since. I can't remember a thing in it. <laughs> so uh, uh, you're going to get, I think, a fair amount of bluff this evening. Uh, luckily, um, Fiona Tan's um, uh, sort of pointillist response to the Silk Road uh, of uh, taking random objects uh, from... Is it not working? Can you hear at the back, guys? I'll hold it. Maybe I'll just hold this. How about this? Better? Yes. Um, is there a microphone stand? That might be the best solution of all that I can... No, no, no. sorry, William. No, We're going to have to get one. So, um... <laughs> Fiona Tan's pointillist response in uh, taking random objects from the countries um, Marco Polo visited uh, has given me a let-out clause. Uh, so you're going to get a pointillist uh, response to Marco Polo's thing by just reading um, extracts from later uh, writings I've done on Marco Polo's uh, journey. We'll have a little uh, tour through the Silk Route, uh, through a variety of books, not just in Xanadu. Just a, a, a little kind of quick introduction, though, before the readings uh, on Marco Polo himself. Marco Polo is remembered today as a traveller. Um, in actual fact, he wasn't, properly speaking, either a traveller uh, or the other thing that he was meant to be, which was a papal envoy. Um, Marco Polo had two reasons to undertake his journey, neither of which was really about exploration, finding the Silk Road, um, discovering new territories, or anything like that. The first reason was that he was from a family of leading and very successful Italian merchants. What I think few people who haven't read Marco Polo know is that long before Marco Polo went on this journey, his father and uncle had already uh, travelled the Silk Road from Venice through uh, the, uh, the Byzantine Empire, through uh, what was then the Mongol Empire, which stretched as far as Persia, Afghanistan, and reached the court of Kublai Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, which was in Shangtu, uh, which later became famous in English literature as uh, Xanadu in uh, Coleridge's Opium uh, Fog. Um, and Marco Polo was part of the second journey, which took place after the Polos returned to Venice with what was to Christendom at that point a thrilling piece of secret intelligence. <laughs> this was the period of the Crusades. In 1095, the First Crusade had established a Crusader kingdom in what's now Israel, a fragment of Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria. That first Western colony had been whittled down by 30 or 40 years of successive attacks, so that there was now only one last bastion left of uh, Crusader um, uh, territory, which was around the, uh, this town of Acre, it was called the Kingdom of Acre. Jerusalem had been lost, this last foothold was there on the coast. And beyond that stretched what, to the medieval west, looked like the almost unimaginably uh, huge 
empire of the Islamic world. But beyond that, Marco Polo's uncle and father brought back intelligence that there was a Mongol empire, which, they said, was on the verge of converting to Christianity. Not quite as far-fetched as it sounded, because Genghis Khan, strangely enough, had a Nestorian Christian stepmother. Large numbers of the Mongol aristocracy were Nestorian Christians, and 20 Nestorian archbishoprics stretched beyond the Indus in places that sound very un-Christian to us today, like Lhasa, Kashgar, Yarkand, Samarkand, and so on. And the Pope sent the Polos back with a secret mission to try and convert Kublai Khan to Christianity and to make an alliance between the Mongols and the Crusaders, which would wipe out the, uh, the wicked Muslim empire in between. This was the, the, the kind of papal plot worthy of Dan Brown, uh, which uh, was hatched. Now, in reality, of course, the uh, Pope was completely the wrong people uh, by choosing the Polos because they were very money-minded Italian merchants. And what is quite clear, if you ever read Marco Polo, which very few people actually do, everyone knows about Marco Polo, it's the airports, jean chains, strip cartoons, even a film starring Leonard Nimoy, Dr. Spock, uh, as Kubla Khan. Um, but if you actually read Marco Polo, what he's writing is a merchant's manual. This young man, aged probably about 17, sets off in 1271 eastwards and begins to write notes which are very accurate about the things on sale. Later in his life, he becomes a prisoner of war uh, in a fight between Genoa and Venice. And he's in a prison in uh, Genoa with the kind of, uh, who would be the equivalent, the Robert Ludlum uh, of, his, of his period, a, a bard called Rusticello, mm. who rewrites these really dull merchant's notes saying you can buy rhubarb in Samarkand. Um, and there's really nice ginger for selling. You make a lot of profit if you go to Kashgar. <laughs> really quite dry, dull stuff. He gives it a bit of topspin, Rusticello. So the book we have today is a very odd mixture of incredibly dull merchant's details uh, with completely fantastical stories by Rusticello. We'll talk a bit about giant birds the size of a, of, of a cliff face who swoop down and, and eat up merchants and all this sort of thing. And it's a very strange and, and, and a pretty unreadable um, manual, if you ever, I mean, you can buy it from Penguin. It's, it's, it's yeah. yeah, I've tried to read it. I gave it up. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> um, once you understand that, it's possible to dismiss the books which have been written lately, particularly by someone called Frances Wood at the British Library, who says that Marco Polo never went to China. She says he never went to China because he doesn't mention the Great Wall. He doesn't mention foot binding. He doesn't mention a whole range of things. But he couldn't buy or sell the Great Wall. This is the point. <laughs> he is a merchant. And there's a whole genre in Italian uh, writing, which was the merchant's manuals, most famous of which was the Pratica della Mercatura uh, of Francesco Pegalotti, uh, who was a, a generation before Marco Polo. And so what you've actually got is, is not a Lonely Planet guide to the Silk Road. Uh, you've got the kind of chartered accountant's guide to, uh, uh, to kind of making profit on the spice route. Uh, given this weird topspin and fantastical nonsense by Rusticello. Um, all in all, a rather unsatisfactory book, you might have thought. And yet this was the book which, for example, inspired Christopher Columbus to go off around looking back passage uh, to China and ended up finding America, uh, which has inspired generations of, uh, of travellers and which has left Marco Polo, strangely, the most famous, probably, medieval traveller. What is often forgotten is that Marco Polo, though, was not, in any sense, alone. 
Um, a generation before Marco Polo's journey, the Pope's previous envoy, a friar called John Piano Carpini, had safely reached the great Khan's camp in Outer Mongolia. Ten years later, William of Rubruck made the same journey and records meeting a host of Europeans at his destination. Among others, William Bouchier, a goldsmith from Paris, and some impoverished Germans, and Basil, the son of an Englishman. So there's a strange sort of colony of sort of strange sort of washed up hippies sitting in, in the Mongolia, the, the poem that precede the poems there. And this was, again, a period of great ease of travel. Uh, there are periods when Asia sort of fragments and it's difficult for people to travel. But the Mongol Empire was, a, it was an extremely disciplined, well-run place where roads operated very easily. The Polos themselves had a, a free passage ticket from the, um, the Great Khan. And um, in the period immediately after Marco Polo, by the 14th century, there was a Franciscan archbishop in Peking and a whole colony of Venetians uh, on the Chinese coast at Hangchow and Zeton. And Zeton, they've recently uh, been digging, uh, and they found this fantastic sort of little, little Italy uh, from 14th century um, uh, on, the, on the coast of China in the 14th century. So I think there's really actually no good reason for doubting Marco Polo's journey. I think uh, uh, it was, in a sense, less remarkable than, um, than it's sometimes made out to be. Uh, and in some ways, it's, it's a less interesting book uh, that, than, uh, than it's sometimes imagined to be. But what is the strange inversion, of course, is that today we're interested in cities like Kashgar, Samarkand, Bukhara, because they are so fantastically remote. They are so fantastically far away, so far from our experience, and, and they sound exotic and, and, and distant and difficult to get to. Forget, what we forget is, of course, that during Marco Polo's period, this was the center of the world. These were the most, uh, these were the great metropoli. These were the great centers of trade and learning and industry. The madrasas of Samarkand and Bukhara were infinitely more sophisticated in the 13th century than the newly founded colleges in Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and uh, we also forget that the, the idea of a university uh, arrives in the West from the Islamic world that the very first universities are founded on the borders of the Islamic world, in places like Salerno, uh, and, uh, and they travel northwards from there, so you get Paris, and then finally Oxford and Cambridge quite late on in the 13th century. Uh, and the very first university is Al-Azhar in, uh, in Cairo. So uh, this is, we have to kind of reverse our, our preconceptions about, uh, about the, the, the ordering of the world, which is, of course, something that's going on as we speak, as, even as we uh, are sitting here. The uh, world is reverting back to its old pattern, whereby India and China are the primary producers of luxury objects and the centre of world trade, and Western Europe is reverting back into the sort of fog of sort of uh, the far north. Um, there is this. If you look at the graphs of world trade for two and a half thousand years of the last 3,000 years, the center of gravity, the center of the world economy is China and India. Uh, these are the places that produce the great goods, these are the places that have the richest products to sell. All the diamonds in the world in India before the discovery of the new world mines, all the spices of the world traded through India, all the silk in the world coming out of China. Um, and it's, it's this brief blip between Vasco da Gama and the Second World War 
where suddenly kind of European gunboats sail in, blow up everything that's there. And briefly, you have this blip where Western Europe dominates. And we, in our lifetimes, will see the end of that uh, imbalance and a return to the traditional path of world trade, whereby China and India dominate. Anyway, I thought I'd just read a few um, passages um, from three books, uh, just to uh, uh, a little uh, entertainment this evening. In Xanadu, my first book is an incredibly silly student <laughs> book written when I was <laughs> no, age no, 21. No. <laughs> and uh, I apologize in advance for it. Um, I, should we have one last go with this thing? Do you want to see whether you can get this working? We've got copies of In Xanadu. Where's Dala? Copies of In Xanadu here. Um, <clears throat> you know, anything but silly. It's hugely funny. I mean, laugh aloud funny. You know, you giggled your way through it. But it's just so. Okay, so can you hear that? Or not really? Can you hear at the back? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, two short readings from. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be heard, William. <laughs> two short readings. Can you hear? I'm not, I, have to, I can help you. Okay. Um, this is a uh, description of going to the cinema in Kashgar. This, you will remember, is 1986. This is a period when China is still properly communist. And I had been led to believe that the Chinese only ever saw movies like, with, with titles like The Chuang Minority Loves Chairman Mao with a Burning Love. <laughs> and uh, The Production Brigade Celebrates the Arrival in the Hills of the Manure Collectors. <laughs> but this guy I met in Kashgar, who I made friends with, this young Muslim uh, Uyghur guy called Salindi, insisted there were in fact quite racy movies on show. And so we went together to the Kashgar Odeon, or whatever name it went by. Uh, and there was no mistaking the movie which was on show. Uh, it was Dr. No. <laughs> we bought two tickets and went inside. The film had just begun. The auditorium was not large by Western standards, but it was packed full. The audience consisted entirely of Uyghur men and all were in a great state of excitement. It seemed not to matter that very few had seats and had to sit on a floor glazed with spittle. <laughs> Going to the cinema was clearly a great treat, and everyone was determined to enjoy themselves, whether or not conditions were perfect, indeed whether or not they could see or hear anything <laughs> at all. I assume this because the Uyghurs can, in fact, have understood almost nothing of what was going on. The film had been dubbed out of its original English, but not into Turkey, the language of Kashgar, but instead into French, which <laughs> cannot have aided comprehension very greatly. And although there were subtitles, these had been placed at the bottom of the frame, beneath those in Tibetan and Chinese, and because of a technical error in the projecting box, all these had disappeared below the screen and now rested on the backs of the heads of the people in the front two rows. <laughs> A similar error had also deprived Sean Connery and Joseph Wiseman of their heads, <laughs> which were projected beyond the screen and could just be seen, along with everything else, at the top of the frame, wildly distorted at the front of the hall. 
Despite all these irritations, the Uyghurs were tolerant. There was an excited murmur every time a character bent down and his face could be fleetingly glimpsed on the screen. <laughs> and the Muslim audience re- behaved with remarkable restraint during the sex scenes. Even Ursula Andress coming out of the sea in her bikini, enough to craze the most worldly-wise Western audience, failed to move the Uyghurs to any really dramatic behaviour. <laughs> Although this may have been because none of the audience has ever seen the sea before, Kashgar being further from it than any other town in the world, and so were distracted from some of the more inflammatory aspects of the sequence. <laughs> It may also have been something to do with the fact that some of the more inflammatory parts of Ursula Andress's body had missed the top of the screen. (laughs) I could only be seen indistinctly, if hugely enlarged, uh, on the front wall. (laughs) There was, in fact, only one scene in the film which really impressed the Uyghurs. This is when James Bond wakes up to find a large and very hairy tarantula crawling up his crotch and making for his torso. There aren't many tarantulas in Kashgar, but the audience certainly got the gist of what was happening. And they went berserk. (laughs) As the spider crawled upwards, the background murmur in the cinema got louder and louder. At the moment, when Bond tossed the beast off his chest onto the floor, crushing it with his shoe, the cinema exploded. (laughs) The the Uyghurs rose from their seat as one and bawled, Allah Akbar, God is great. A very old man next to me took off his shoe and started thumping the floor with it. <laughs> Hats were thrown in the air, urchins made wolf whistles. It was like the winning goal at the cup final. <laughs> After that, even the 20 megaton nuclear explosion in the Spectre headquarters came as something of an anticlimax. <laughs> This is even sillier. Um, this, <laughs> this is a, a scene which I'm sure all of you have, have, have had in, in, in variations. Uh, at the border between um, Iran and Pakistan. What is your good name, Saab? Asked the customs officer. And what is your mother country? I told him they were the old familiar South Asian questions. He took down a few more formal details. Are you Wad? He asked. What do you mean? Are you a Lady Wad? That's not English. You do not speak English, sir? I am English. It didn't seem any point in muddling the issue at this point by bringing in Scotland. (laughs) You have some words of English? Yes, a number. I am an Englishman. This was an aspect of India I'd forgotten. Are you a Lady Wad? He said, making an obscene gesture with the first finger of his right hand. Wed? Do you mean are we wed? Yes, you and Lady Wad? No, not Wad. No, I am not wed. I am sorry, sir, but I'm not understanding your English. I think perhaps you are not speaking English good. <laughs> sir, may I ask, what is your mother tongue? Look, I've told you that. I'm an Englishman and I speak English extremely well. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> he is calling upon his God, exclaimed the second cousin. <laughs> you are angry with me. No, I'm not angry with you. I just want to get on. Sub, just one question. What? You like bottom? (laughs) (laughs) 
he pointed at me. I look like No, no, sir. <laughs> you like a bottom. I like bottom. <laughs> I don't understand, I said. I really didn't. Bottom, bottom, he said, wiggling his head. From <laughs> I like bottom. I am bottom fan. You like bottom? Oh, I like some bottom. I said. <laughs> ah, you do like bottom. You are. You are bottom fan. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. All English people like bottom. <laughs> Oh, yes, said the second customs official. All Pakistani people are liking Imran Khan. All English people are liking Ian Bottom. <laughs> it goes on like that for about 350 pages. <laughs> <coughs> OK, this is um, a slightly more um, incendiary character I met a few years later in the West Bank. This is about... Father Theophanes, the guest master of the monastery of Mar Saba, which is a, uh, a monastery which predates Marco Polo by about uh, 600 years, which he visited uh, on his journeys through the, um, the Middle East. Um, today, this great monastery, which was the place where, for example, uh, the stories of the Buddha was first translated into Greek, um, has just six monks left in it. Look at it, said Father Theophanes, the monastery's tall, gaunt guest master, waving a hand at the dark, rocky gorge beneath us. There it is, the valley of doom, the valley of dreadful judgment. Below us, the monastic buildings of Marsaba fell away in a ripple of chapels cells and oratories, each successive lair hanging like a wasp nest from a red ledge in the rock face. Opposite, the top of the cliff wall had turned an almost unnatural shade of red in the light, last of the evening light. The rock was pitted with caves, each formerly the cell of a Byzantine monk. All were now deserted. It's very beautiful, I said. Beautiful, said Father Theophanes, rustling his robes in horror. Beautiful, see down there at the bottom of the river. Nowadays it's just sewage from Jerusalem, but on Judgment Day, that's where the river of blood is going to flow. It's going to be full of Freemasons, whores and heretics, Protestants, schismatics, Jews and Catholics. More Uzo? Please. <laughs> he poured a small thimbleful of spirit into a glass. And I gulped it down. He continued with his apocalypse. At the head of all the damned will be a pope, sorry, will be a troop composed of all the popes of Rome, followed by their deputies, the vice presidents of the Freemasons. Are you saying the pope's a Freemason? I asked. A Freemason? He's the president of the Freemasons. Everyone knows this. Each morning he worships the devil in the form of a naked woman with the head of a goat. Actually, I said, um, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> then, said Father Theophanes, unless you convert to orthodoxy, you too will follow your Pope down the valley through the scorching fire. We will watch you from this balcony, he added. But of course, by then, it'll be too late to save you. Anyway, this, 
sort of goes on for a bit. And uh, it's only at the very end of my stay that I finally pluck up the courage to ask him you know, why he's quite so obsessed with the Freemasons. But the fun is I, I asked, you know, I don't understand why you've got this thing about the Freemasons. Because, he said, they are the legions of the Antichrist, the stormtroopers of the whore of Babylon. But, you know, I thought these days Freemasons just held coffee mornings and whist drives and that sort of thing. <laughs> whist drives, said Father Theophanes, <laughs> pronouncing the words if it was some sort of satanic ritual. Probably this whist drive also. <laughs> there are many steps, he said, nodding knowingly. There are many steps. But the main activity is to worship the devil. After that, the final step is to meet with the devil and have homosexual relations with him. <laughs> After this, he makes you pope, or sometimes President of the United States. <laughs> president? Certainly, he said. This has been proved. All the presidents of the United States have been Freemasons, except Kennedy, and you know what happened to him. <laughs> Slightly different mood, um, bit of a downer this one actually. But, um, this is from my new book, Nine Lives, which is what we um, performed in the Opera House last night, bringing um, many of the people in the book uh, to Sydney. But this is uh, one woman who, who may not even be alive anymore and certainly wasn't in Sydney. This is a, a story of a Jain nun called Prasanna Matamataji. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Jains. The Jains um, are, uh, is a religion that has the same sort of origins as Buddhism, um, dating back to the Ganges Basin, the early Indian city-states of the first millennium BC. And just as the Buddha reacted against the materialism of his time, so a generation earlier, before the Buddha, the Mahavir, uh, produced this faith, the Jains, which differs from the Buddhist scriptures in many ways, but particularly in its asceticism, where the Buddha sort of middle way, which didn't involve over-punishing yourself, the Jain faith, certainly for the monks and the nuns, is extremely harsh. Uh, Buddhists shave their heads. The Jains pluck out their hairs one by one. The Buddhist uh, monks beg for food. The Jains are not allowed to ask for food, and if they don't get food given to them, they have to just go hungry. They are obsessive about not harming creatures. It's a very ecologically sound faith. Um, not only do the monks and nuns brush the road in front of them to make sure they don't accidentally step on an ant and kill it, uh, they are not even allowed to eat vegetables which they will kill by uprooting. So it's fine to have rice, which will live if you harvest it, or to take an apple from a tree. It's not all right to uh, dig up a potato or carrot, because you'll kill it by, uh, by eating it. Um, so it's a very harsh faith on the devotees, very light and, and soft on the world around it, in the sense uh, the opposite of, of modern Christianity. And um, I went, actually, to write about a completely different pair of Jain nuns, to Sravana Belagolo, which is one of the big Jain centres in Karnataka. But I met this woman here, and she was extraordinary. And her story was really very simple. 
She'd given up everything. She was an extremely beautiful young woman from a merchant family, well-educated, with everything, really, that life can offer. Uh, and she gave up everything to follow the Jane path in order to get rid of attachments. And yet she discovered she did have one attachment without even realizing it, a very, very strong and profound attachment, which was her friend Preogamati, who became a nun with her, uh, and who then found she was very ill and did the final Jane act of asceticism, which is regarded by the Jains as the highest form of asceticism, which is to starve yourself to death. They don't regard it as suicide. They regard it as the ultimate self-sacrifice. And it happens very gradually. But in the end, finally, they stop drinking even water. Uh, and they pass on, as they believe, to their next life. I'll read two short extracts from this story. At the end of two years with the Sangha, with our Jain community, explained Prasanna Matamataji, I finally made up my mind that I would take Diksha, would take my vows. That November, they plucked my hair for the first time. It's the first step, like a test of your commitment. Because if you can't take the pain of having your hair plucked out, you're not going to be ready to take the next step. That day, I performed a fast. And that evening, one of the senior Matajis of the Sangha applied the ash of dried cow dung. This acts as a sort of natural antiseptic, if you bleed, as well as stopping the hand from slipping during the plucking. I had very beautiful, long, dark hair. As I was still very young, my guru wanted to cut it with scissors and then shave my head with a razor so as not to inflict such pain upon me. But I insisted. I said, there was no going back now. I was a very obstinate girl. Whatever I wanted to do, I did. So they agreed to do what I wished. I think everyone was rather amazed by my stubbornness, by my determination. The whole ritual took nearly four hours and was very painful. I tried not to, but I couldn't help crying. I didn't tell my parents about my decision, as I knew they would try to stop me. But somehow they heard and came running. By the time they arrived, the ceremony was almost over. When they saw me with a bald head and scars and blood all over my scalp, where the hair had once been, my mother screamed and my father burst into tears. They knew then that I would never turn back from this path. After that, whenever the Sangha would arrive at a village, the Maharaj would show me off. Look, he would say, this is one so young and yet so very determined, doing what even the old would hesitate to do. It was about this time that I met my friend Priyogamati. One day our Sangha happened to walk into her village and as her father was a rich merchant and lived in a large house, they invited us to stay with them. Priyogamati was the same age as me, 15. A beautiful, fragile, sensitive girl. And she came down every day to our room to talk to us. We quickly became very close, talking late into the night. 
she was fascinated by my voice and by my life in the Sangha. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who seemed to understand me in the way she did and who shared all my beliefs and ideals. She was about to be engaged to the son of a rich diamond merchant, and the match had been arranged for her. But she told me that she was really much more interested in taking Diksha. She also knew that her family would not allow her to do this. After a week, we left that village, setting off to the next town on foot before dawn. That evening, Priyogamati borrowed some money from her mother, saying she wanted to go to the circus. Instead, she took two outfits from her room and jumped on a bus. Late that night, she found us and asked the Maharaj to accept her. Her family realised what had happened, and her father and brothers came and begged her to return. But she refused, and our Guruji said it was up to her to decide. From that point, we were together for 20 years. We took Diksha together, and travelled together, and ate together, and spent our monsoon breaks in Chattumasa together. Soon, we became very close. Except for the Chattumasa, it is forbidden for us to stay long time in one place, in case we become attached. So most nights we would sleep in a different place, and our life was full of variety. Some nights we'd stay in the house of a rich man, sometimes in a school, sometimes in a dharmasala, sometimes in a cave or in a jungle. People think of our life as harsh, and of course in many ways it is. But going into the unknown world and confronting it without a single rupee in your pocket means that all differences between rich and poor, educated and illiterate, all vanish. And a common humanity emerges. As wanderers, we monks and nuns are free of the shadows of the past. This wandering life with no material possessions unlocks our souls. There is a wonderful sense of lightness, living each day as it comes, with no sense of ownership, no weight, no burden. Journey and destination become one. Thought and action become one. Until it is as if we are moving like a river into complete detachment. But it was while walking that Priyogamati finally began to realize that her health was failing. Because she had difficulty in keeping up with me, we noticed that there was something wrong in her joints. She began to have real difficulty in walking and even more in sitting or squatting. For 10 years, her condition got worse. By the end, it pained her to move at all, and she had difficulty moving or sitting. Then one afternoon, about 20 years after she'd taken her vows, she was studying the scriptures in a monastery in southern Karnataka when she began coughing. Her cough had become worse and worse, and she began to make this deep, retching noise. But this time, when she took her hand away from her mouth, she found it was covered in blood. After that, there was nothing more for a week. But then she began coughing up blood very regularly. 
Sometimes it was just a small amount, enough to make her mouth red. At other times, she'd cough up enough to fill a small teacup or even a bowl. I guessed immediately that it was TB and got special permission from our Guruji to let her see a doctor. Western medicine is forbidden to us because so much is used by making, so much of it is made by using dead animals or by torturing animals during the testing process. But given the seriousness of the situation, our Guruji agreed to let a Western doctor look after her. And although he insisted that only herbal medicine could be given to her, and only then at the time of the one daily meal. Prayogamati remained calm, and for a long time she hoped that she might recover her health. Even when it became clear that this was something quite serious, she remained composed and peaceful. I always think it was me that was more worried. She kept assuring me that she was feeling better already and that it was nothing serious. But in reality, you didn't have to be a doctor to see that her health was rapidly deteriorating. Her digestive system became affected. The bloody coughing continued. And after a while, she started showing blood when she went for ablutions too. Eventually, I got permission to take her to a hospital where she had an MRI scan and a full blood test. They diagnosed her problem as Cox's syndrome, advanced TB of the digestive system. They said her haemoglobin was very reduced and her chances were not good. One doctor said if we'd come earlier, he could have helped. But we left it much too late. That same day, Prayogamati decided to embrace Salakana. She said that she would prefer to give up her body rather than have it taken from her. She said she wanted to die voluntarily facing it squarely and embracing it, rather than have death ambush her and take her away by force. She was determined to be the victor, not the victim. I tried to argue with her, but like me, once she took a decision, it was very hard to make her change her mind. Despite her pain and illness, she set out that day to walk 100 kilometers to see our guru, who was then in Indore, staying at the Shantinath Jain temple. We got there after a terrible week in which Prayogamati suffered very badly. It was winter, late December, and bitterly cold. But she refused to give up. And when she got to indoors, she asked her Guruji's permission to begin the process of embracing Salekana. He asked Prayogamati if she was sure, and she said yes. When he learned that she would probably not have very long to live, he gave his assent. Throughout 2004, Prayogamati began gradually reducing her food. One by one, she gave up all the vegetables she used to eat. She began eating nothing at all on several days of the week. For 18 months, she ate less and less. Normally, Salakana is peaceful. But for Prayogamati, because of her illness, her end was full of pain. My job was to feed her and look after her and read the prescribed texts and mantras. I was also there to talk to her and give her courage and companionship. 
I stayed with her 24 hours a day and took the leadership of her samadhi. Throughout, she tolerated everything, all the pain and all the discomfort, and stayed completely calm. Such calmness you can hardly imagine. I always enjoyed her company and always learned from her, but never more than towards the end. She showed how it is possible to keep quiet and smilingly show acceptance, no matter how much you are suffering. Such a person will not be born again. <coughs> By September 2005, she was bedridden, and I remained continually by her side for three months, until the beginning of December. By this stage, she was eating only five things. Pomegranate juice, milk, rice, mung dal, and sugar. Every day, she would eat a little less. In the last week, she was given protein injections by a Jane doctor, but she was very weak. She had to summon all her strength to perform the observations that had to be followed during the Salekana. Despite not eating and hardly drinking, her body had somehow swelled up because of the disease, and she continued to lose a lot of blood every time she performed her ablutions. At the end, she was also running a terrible fever of 105 degrees and was covered in sweat. In the afternoon, she would feel cold. In the evening, she would burn. I asked the doctors, what is the reason for this? They did some tests and said, now she has caught malaria too. They gave her some injections, but it didn't really help. During these last days, our Guruji was not there. He had gone away for some function. So for the last days, I was the only person she knew in that temple. Though many Munis were there to sing, and chant and support her. The next day the fever was still there again. Again the doctor came and she asked for some food but she could not stand. In fact, she could not even open her mouth. He advised her to drink half a glass of milk and this she took. Just after 1.30pm I went to take my food and was just starting to eat when Priyogamati cried out loudly. I rushed to look after her. It was clear her condition was not good at all. There was no one around except a boy at the gate, so I sent him off to the doctor. When I came back, I held her hand. And she whispered that now she wished to stop all remaining food. Her suffering was too much for her now. She said that for her, death was as welcome as life. There was a time to live and a time to die. Now, she said, the time has come for me to be liberated from my body. By that time, our Guruji had returned and he gathered the community. By early afternoon, all the Gurujis and Matajis were there guiding her and sitting together around her bed. Others came to touch her feet. The room was full of people, and so was the veranda outside. Everyone was chanting the Namokara mantra, singing bhajans and kirtans, and reading the Jain texts, which explain the nature of the soul. 
Everyone was there to support Breogamati, to give her courage as she began to slip away. Around 4pm, the doctor said he thought she was about to die, but she held on. It was very peaceful in the end. It was dark by then, and the lamps were all lit around the room. Her breathing had been very difficult that day, but towards the end, <coughs> it became easier. I held her hand, the monks chanted, and her eyes closed. For a while, even I didn't know that she had gone. She just slipped away. When I realised she had left, I wept bitterly. We are not supposed to do this, and our Guruji frowned at me, but I couldn't help myself. I had followed all the steps correctly until she passed away. But then everything I had bottled up came pouring out. Her body was still there, but she wasn't in it. It was no longer her. The next day, the 15th of December, she was cremated. They burnt her at 4 p.m. All the devotees in Indore came, over 2,000 people. It was a Sunday. The following morning at dawn, I got up and headed off. There was no reason to stay. It was the first time as a nun that I had ever walked anywhere alone.